0: It's all about a number. It always has been, even before I knew that it was. In high school, I amassed honors and extracurriculars. At Penn, I grabbed every internship, pledged the right fraternity, and got involved with the clubs I needed to, to distinguish myself from all the other Ivy League 4.0s. After doing 80 to 100 hour weeks on Wall Street as an analyst, I finally realized what I was chasing. A number. What my net worth had to be to give it all up. I met my wife while I was at Chicago banging out my MBA. Grad school was a cakewalk compared to the street. I played hard and we fell in love and made plans for our future. We would have three kids, a house in the suburbs, a summer place. I pushed myself harder than ever. At first, my wife was resentful of my long hours and my distracted attention, but then the kids came and she was just as distracted and exhausted as I was. And the kids? I coached soccer on Saturday mornings, showing up for all the lacrosse games and ballet recitals, but really, every time I looked at them, all I could think about was that number. If I could get there, we would be able to really enjoy each other someday. I'd sacrifice when they were little so that they could have this amazing life and then they'd look back and see that all I was doing was out of love for them. But the grind, it never ends. When I made VP, I was still on the 6 a.m. train surrounded by all the other blue suits, only now I was out with clients most nights, expected to help land the big ones and keep them happy. I was made a managing director at a rival firm. I was a rock star, moving heaven and earth because now I could see the light at the end. Once I made partner, I knew, I knew that number was mine. Sure, I still had crushing responsibilities, a huge staff spread over three continents, shareholders' unrealistic expectations, hotel rooms 10 days a month, but I was now sure I would finally catch that number, that thing I had been giving up my life for. That number would finally let me have long vacations with my wife and get to know my kids on a real level, surrounded by my family's love and respect. I mean, who doesn't want that? To feel that their whole life had been validated. Now here I am, the final lap. I'll retire at the end of the year. I'm still young enough to really enjoy it, too. One of the lucky ones, to get out in time to really live.
1: Punching the gut. Yeah? Did you see that coming? I didn't see it coming. I looked at it again and I saw the white coats on the back of the door and I thought, boy, I should have seen that. I didn't see I just saw the numbers running. Yeah. Great, great thing to look at as we approach Holy Week. Yeah? Time to, Time to think about why we're here and what we're doing and what's really important in life, and that's, that's exactly what this period we call, some of us call Lent, is to lead up to that time, Holy Week, when we really get down to the brass tracks of, of uh, life. Holy Week, that period from next Sunday until Easter, y- you know what it is, and, and so do I. In fact, we could probably list together the things that happened in, in Holy Week. There was a, this is Passover, and that became the Lord's Supper, and uh, there was a time out in, the, uh, out in the garden where Jesus prays, and you know the, the pain that he went through. In fact, the period of time we're talking about is really the toughest time in Jesus' life, and arguably the most important time in Jesus' life. He uh, goes from the garden, and then he's, then he's arrested, and he's brought before Herod, and then he's brought before Pilate, or I don't know which one was first, and then, then he's, uh, he's condemned. It's an illegal trial, it happens at night, it wasn't supposed to happen. You know, all kinds of inconsistencies in terms of the legal process at the time, but he's brought before them. He's found guilty of lies, you know, their lies set up by people who hated him, taken out to go to uh, the place of the skull where, where he's crucified. And thank God he's raised. He's raised. That's Holy Week. I think it is. Wait a minute. There was a Monday and a Tuesday and a Wednesday of Holy Week, wasn't there? As far as we know, Thursday night was the night in which he got together with his disciples, and then he was was taken and and put on trial all night and beaten and scourged all night. But, you know, the funny thing about it is I think about Thursday, Friday, and Saturday and Sunday when I think about Holy Week, but I really don't think about Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. I wonder if anything special happened on Monday. What about Jesus on Monday? You know, maybe some things happen on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday that you and I would be wise to think about so that we can get ready for Thursday and Friday and Saturday and ultimately Sunday. But I got to thinking about that when I was preparing the message and I thought, man, I, I need to look at that. And in fact, I got to thinking about that Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday and the corresponding Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday for you, for you. What, what happens on Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday? Well, Real life happens on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, doesn't it, for most of you? You know, you, you catch the train, you, you uh, hop on the school bus, you have exams, you have uh, tryouts and auditions, you have uh, 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 deadlines to be met, you have uh, uh, back to school night. <laughs> Which you'd really rather not go to. You're exhausted by the time you get to it, and and you know the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday they come on the heels of what might have been a really fun and nice weekend when you got to spend time with your family. You saw the kids play sports, and you you uh, you went to Renaissance on Sunday, and then you had lunch with people you really care about, and and then Sunday afternoon you even took a nap, and then. Then comes Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, and I got to thinking, does Jesus have anything to say to us on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday? And I'll bet, I'll bet he does. So I'd like to take you there, and we can go to Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, especially Monday in Mark chapter 11, and I want to go to verse 12 through 33, but I got to looking at it just before the time we came together today. And I realized I should have gone back to verse 11 because verse 11, Jesus has just gone into the city of Jerusalem. He's looked around in the temple courts. This becomes important. Looks at everything, but since it was already late, it says he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Then comes verse 12. So this is Monday. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went out to find if it had any fruit, When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, "'May no one ever eat fruit from you again,' and his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, "'Is it not written?' My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city, and in the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. This is Tuesday. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered, "'Have faith in God,' Jesus answered. "'Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, "'Go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, "'but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. "'Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, "'believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. "'And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, "'forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins.'" They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, What if we say from heaven? He'll ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. I don't know if you ever focused on that chapter before, but, but when I looked at that chapter and I thought about Monday and Tuesday at least, and I, there's more here about Wednesday probably, but... Just Monday and Tuesday, I, I got to think that Jesus is really a tough character here, isn't he? He's a, he's a troubling man. He's a man who causes the stuff to rile up in the people that he confronts on that Monday and Tuesday. He's a disturbing man, as I, as I put it. Let's go through those three occurrences, those three uh, scenes in this this. Uh, this play that's being brought out to us in Mark chapter 11. The the first is the fig tree in Jesus. And and you know the fig tree story. His teaching here is divided into two places or two times. Uh, When he first approaches the fig tree and he looks for some fruit and notice that it was out of season. That's kind of interesting. But he's still looking for fruit. He doesn't find any. You saw what it said. Jesus says, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Kind of a strange thing to say. Then later in the day, when he comes back with his disciples, his his disciples take note that the tree still has no fruit, only now it's withered, and they're amazed, and it sounds sounds to me like they're threatened. Is this how he treats people who have no fruit? And Jesus must have sensed the difficulty that they were going through because he says to them, have faith in God. Calm calm down, have faith. Have faith in God. God can do things through you that you can't imagine yourself doing. So so calm down. Have faith. But then, you know, then he comes back and he pushes a little harder. Look at what he looks for. He says, I'm looking for mountain-moving faith. He, He says, I'm looking for you to pray like you really believe it, like you really mean it. And then, then he says, I'm looking for you to forgive those who hurt you. So, at the same time as he says, hey, hey, have faith in God, God can do things. Then at the same time, he says, wait a minute. You know, you welcomed me on Monday or on Sunday. Now it's Monday and Tuesday. So, it's time to step up. It's time to be real with what you've committed yourself to on Sunday. This is not the meek and mild Jesus. This is no cakewalk, this uh, life of following him. He welcomes us, and he assures us of his presence and his strength and support, but he still says, you've got to step up. I expect that of you. That's the fig tree. Well, the second episode, the second scene in this whole play, is Jesus and the temple. This is the second visit to the temple in his life, at least that we have recorded. We know, uh, or I know, I think some time ago you went through John chapter 2, and you saw Jesus going to the temple, well, this is another time when he goes to the temple, recorded here by Mark later in his life, obviously, his second visit. So he's gone to the temple on Sunday night as we saw in verse 11, and he's looked around, but it was late, so he left. Now he comes back on Monday. And the scripture tells us that that, that, that brief visit on, on, uh, on Sunday really set the scene for what he decided to do on Monday. Because what he saw on Sunday, and now he sees it again on Monday, is appalling to him. It's like a circus in the temple grounds. Now, last time I was here, I showed you a picture of a model of the temple itself. What you may not have seen in that picture was that there was a large, large area outside the temple walls, uh, the, the interior walls, where you had colonnades and, and there was open area where people would meet together and they would talk about the scriptures and the rabbis would be there to, to instruct them in the law and they would go back and forth in terms of learning what the law had to say and, and what they were supposed to do about it in life. So so what he's finding in all of that area is he's finding this disruption. He's finding the money changers and he's finding the, the, the merchandise people there. Now The money changers had a right to be there. They needed to be there because you had to change the the coin of the Roman Empire, wherever people came from, to the coin of the temple, which was a shekel. So they, they had to be there. They're like the money changers in the airports when you go overseas, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, they had to be there. You needed that. And, and likewise, the sellers of the items to be sacrificed, like he says, here are the doves. They had, they had to be there. People didn't have their own doves, so they had to come and they had to buy a dove. So there's nothing wrong necessarily with them being there, but the impact of what they were doing there, the commercial interests around the temple area were so great that that in effect, what it did was it canceled out what God intended to happen in the the temple. And what did God intend to happen in the temple? Well, people were supposed to meet with God. and People were supposed supposed to take the scriptures and understand what they said, what God was saying, and talk about them and encourage each other. And, and sacrifice animals and, and, and other things for their worship. That's what it was intended for. But what was happening was that was being canceled out. Easy enough to imagine it. I mean, we've got one room here. Imagine if Beth brought her, her breath mints in here and brought them right up there to that spot there. Yeah, you know about the breath mints, don't you? <laughs> Thanking God for the breath mints, aren't you? <laughs> me too, me too. And, and, and the folks were to bring the, the coffee over here and there was a men's room over here and a ladies' room over there. Do you think you'd hear anything I had to say? Do you think you'd see anything up on the screen? Probably not. There's so much movement around around the room that you couldn't possibly... That's exactly what was going on in the temple. The purpose of the temple was being canceled out because of the commercial interests that were taking place there. So he drives them out. Why? Well, he tells us, Mark chapter 11, verse 17, and as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, take a minute, absorb what's going on here. He must have looked to some people like a madman. At at times, he must have looked like he was usurping authority, taking control where other people were in charge. And remember how important this building was to the people of Israel. I mean, this was it. This was ground zero. You remember the towers coming down. Remember what that did to you. Oh, some of you lost your jobs. The repercussions were much more than I could begin to imagine. But I know for a lot of us who didn't lose our jobs, it was right in here that it hurt us. And the fear was real. The caution was real. Even about going into the city immediately after. Imagine what it was like for the Jews, who saw this one building and these grounds as the place where they could meet with God, and here's Jesus causing such a disruption, disturbing, yeah, yeah, troubling, absolutely, absolutely. Well, that's the second scene, the second scene or the third scene. Excuse me, is the Jesus and the religious leaders? It's it's a parable, and the parable is about. Uh, about a man who owned a uh, a farm and and he rented the farm out to tenant farmers and the tenant farmers who were supposed to pay him his rent didn't pay him his rent, probably a portion of the produce of the farm didn't pay it. So the the owner of the farm, the landlord uh, sent messengers to them and the messengers were dismissed or they were beaten or they were killed. And finally, he sent his own son. The landlord sent his own son to collect, and surely they're going to listen to my own son. They don't. They take his life. Jesus, the one who was sent by the Father, was going to give his life. And the Father, before that time, had sent messenger after messenger after messenger to the religious leaders, telling them, look, this is what I meant when I said the law. This is what I want you to do, and this is how you help people, and this is how you come to me. and and they dismissed the messengers. And the messengers were called prophets, and they were mainly messengers of the Older Testament that you've read about and heard about. And finally, the son was going to come and give his life. Well, they knew what he was talking about. They were well aware. Verse 11 says that they began to think about how they could kill him. Or chapter 11. Chapter 12, a little bit later, says they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Disturbing? Oh, say the least. Troubling, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Uh, move their cheese, yeah, move their cheese. Uh, and nobody, nobody did that with the leaders, because they had so much power. They talked about them behind their back. Oh, sure, sure, but they didn't do this. And please take note that most of chapter 11 is directed, at least in part, at the religious leaders, the ones who thought they had it all together. And they hated him. And they caused, from a human perspective, his death. Now, I don't usually look at Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of, of uh, Holy Week. Like I say, I just kind of jump to the end of Holy Week. I, I watch one football faith, game faithfully every year. It's the Super Bowl. And I watch it if the Giants play, especially. They disappointed me, they haven't played in a while. But, but I also like the snacks at the Super Bowl. And I came to Renaissance Super Bowl this past year and the snacks, they're, they're good. Yeah, Even if you don't like football, my wife doesn't care about football. She came with me because the snacks are good. And I bet she'll come next year because the snacks are good. So, so you know, I jumped to the Super Bowl. And so on Holy Week I jump to Thursday, Friday, Saturday and I'm so glad to get to Sunday. I don't think about Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, but when I spend time in the Scriptures and I get ready for a message like this, I begin to ask myself, when was the last time I was disturbed by Jesus? When was the last time I felt like he was moving my cheese and I felt like hanging on to it and saying, no, Lord, not that area. No, don't, don't take that. Don't mess with that. When was the last time... I felt uncomfortable with what Jesus had to say to me in the quiet times of my life or in the noisy times of my life. When was the last time I was disturbed by Jesus? And if I wasn't disturbed by Jesus last time, have I have any idea what it was like to really be a a follower of Christ in the first century. And therefore, do I know what it's like to be a follower of Christ in the 21st century if I never went through the Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday experience with Jesus that the disciples of the first century went through? I want to jump to the end of the week because those are the big deal things. But then I realize, oh, wait a minute, I got to go to Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday too if I'm going to know what it's like to be a follower. And if I'm really going to absorb what's going on on the weekend and and begin to realize, oh, what this was like for Jesus on Thursday night and on, on Friday and Saturday, and and then thank God on Sunday. If I'm ever going to know that, then don't I have to stop on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and walk with him? And if he hasn't disturbed me, then have I been there on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday? It's kind of a strange question. (laughs) In fact, Ilona and I had a discussion last night and again this morning because (laughs) she says, you want me to pray that God would trouble me? I said, no, 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 I don't mean that. You want me to pray that that, that uh, God would give me hard times? I said, no, no, I don't mean that. And, you know, she looked at me like, are you crazy? No, I, I don't mean that. But, but in the normal course of my walk with Jesus, it, are there times when he He moves my cheese? Are there times when I'm listening closely enough to hear him say, Peter, you got to get in line with this, or Peter, you've you got to let go of that, or... Peter, you got to increase this. Are there times when that happens to me? Are there times when it happens to you? Because most of the time, we look to Jesus for comfort. I mean, I do. We look to Jesus for encouragement. Life is hard. It's difficult to face Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. It's hard to get on the school bus and have exams that day. It's, it's hard to face an uncertain retirement. It's hard to, hard to know you're getting the pink slip. It's hard to have to change careers. And just talk to somebody today. She had to change careers. She was all set in the newspaper industry. All of a sudden, the industry, it disappears, and now she's in real retail. Her whole life is upset. I don't pray for that. I pray for comfort. I pray for strength. I pray for... Oh, maybe a mild dose of correction. Not too much, Lord. Yeah. What about the troubling words of Jesus? And I have to ask, why am I so seldom disturbed? Why? Why why have I created such a cocoon where I'm comfortable and everything's fine? And if somebody asks me if everything's fine, I say, yeah, man, this is just great. And and that may be true. It is great for me right now. I I love my life. I wouldn't trade this period of time for anything. Uh, All my years, I I, I love this period of time. I don't wish I was back someplace else. I surely don't wish I was further along, but but I don't wish I was someplace else because this is just such a rich and good time. So why am I seldom confronted by Jesus with change? And, you know, I can only give you a part of the answer because I don't have the whole answer, because I don't know all of that, but I do know some of the things that have been a part of my life or not been a part of my life that have brought me to places where I'm, you know, it's just like this in my life. It's all calm, everything's fine, everything's under control, everything's put together, and I recognize that that's nice and calm and put together because of these things. One is insufficient contact with him. That's a no-brainer. I mean, if I don't listen to him at all, if I don't get to his word, if I don't sit with him, then how can I hear anything he has to say? If the disciples hadn't walked with him to Jerusalem that day, they wouldn't have seen the fig tree. They wouldn't have gotten a lesson of it. They wouldn't have been instructed by Jesus, so they had to have contact with him. They had to be with him. And there's some sense in which if I don't spend any time with him, if I never escape from the busyness and the noise of my life, if there's not a place where I go with my Bible open and I am there to be with him, then... No wonder I don't hear anything from him. So what's the cure for that? Well, the cure for that is fairly simple. It is I got to spend time with him. And I, I know that's hard. That's like a death tell for, for you. I, I get that. I, I know. And I have a hard time even saying that because I know what it was like when I was working full time and I had kids and, and, and I had responsibilities. And I had night meetings and all that stuff that a pastor does. So it's awfully hard to carve out that time, but I don't know any other way. If they hadn't carved out time to be with him in the temple courts, they would have never seen what he did or heard what he did. So likewise, I I can't walk into Jerusalem with him, but I can surely open my Bible and I can spend time with him. So if you really want this, if you really want this, the change that will make you more like Jesus, then it's going to have to come with time. I wish I had an easier answer for you, a shorter solution, a quick one. Everything saves time in our life now. Okay, let's take some of that time. Let's get the calendar out and decide, I'm going to be in this place at this time on a daily basis because I want to hear what Jesus has to say and I've got to have it so that's going to be the daily bread of my life. My life. Insufficient contact with him has been my problem over the years just like it is yours. There's a second thing that's really related to that and that's insufficient reflection. And this comes out of my background in part because I've been trained to be cognitive. You know, I've been trained to think at the text. I get the Bible open. I study what it means and I I get my dictionary out and I get my my grammar out and I get my, my commentaries out and I find out what this means and I get the historic background to it and I and I find out what Jesus said and did and then, then the impact that it had on people there. But if I never take that and give time for it to reflect upon my life, then I never hear him. I only know more about him. And knowing more about him is not enough. It's not enough with Ilona. I can know all kinds of things about Ilona, but if I don't know Ilona, then our marriage is only half full. Yeah, Same with God. Same with Jesus. Somehow that that, that time that I spend with him has to include time when, when I'm beginning to reflect about my own life and where my life fits into this and, and where God might be speaking in terms of that statement and, and, and that action. And, and as I look at the reaction to him, where God may be saying, Peter, you're more like them than you are like these guys, and you've you got to do something about that. So, so, so I need to spend time doing that, so that has to be added, sorry, added onto the time. And it's harder to do that. It takes time to do that. But if I can't set aside the time to do that, then the, the knowledge I get from the Scriptures, though it's important and it's good and it's wonderful, it doesn't go as far as it's supposed to go to shape and change me. And I need to be changed, just like the disciples need to be changed, the religious people of his day. Okay, one other step to this process that I, that I, am, I, I try to enter into on a daily basis, and that's a measure of self-awareness that that doesn't come easily for me, didn't start to come easily for me until I broke my my back trying to be what God wanted me to be back a dozen years ago. And then God brought me through this period of time in which I got some counseling and I I learned how to worship all by myself and I found out how to come to Jesus in a way that I'd never learned before. And I'd been a pastor for years and I'd gone to seminary and all that stuff, grad school, but man, oh man, there was just something about self-awareness that opened up during that period of time so that I could look at me. I could find out what's going on in me. One of my friends, Glenn Murphy, is a counselor, he used to be on my staff in Millington Baptist, uh, told me one time that when he counsels somebody, what he's trying to do is he's trying to hear what's going on in their life, in their heart, and, and that, that same emotion, that same feeling will sooner or later be reflected in his heart and life. So if a person is dealing with fear, he'll begin to feel that fear. It's amazing to me. Anybody could be that self-aware, but that's what he does. So when he counsels and he begins to talk to them, he's coming in some sense from where they are. I, I'm not where Glenn is. I, I don't do that like he does it. But boy, I'll tell you, that's been one of the efforts of my life to become self-aware of what's going on in my life so that my meeting with Jesus is, is involved with my, not just my brain, but my emotions, my heart, my feelings. And it becomes a transaction of two people and not just a God who's out there or in the book, but a God who's right here. This may seem strange or stupid to you, but just recently God prompted me to take a stool where I come to be with him on a daily basis and I sit that stool in front of me. Now I know he's not there. And well, yes, he is. I, I don't know. I can't see him there. But I don't put my book on that stool because that's his. I don't put my my phone with my Bible on it because that's his. I don't put my pen on that because that's his. And I want it to be as as amazingly real as it can possibly be. And what that does is that creates the self-awareness in me so that I can hear his voice. Even if the voice is troubling. Even if the voice says, Peter... You gotta get in line. Peter, you're doing it out of rote and not out of heart. Peter, you gotta give more financially. Peter, you gotta let go of the control of the next step in your life. Peter, you gotta accept the limitations that you have physically, because you're getting older. Peter, it's just part of life, you gotta let go. And if I get in that place on a regular basis, not every time, but on a regular basis, I, I swear I hear his voice. And I walk away from that place saying, oh, God, it was so good to be here. Just so good. Because this is what I need. This is what I need. I don't need more information. I got a lot of that. I don't need more do's and don'ts. I got, I got too much of that. I need him. I need him. And what they got that day and the next day was him. And it was uncomfortable, (laughs) it really was. And they didn't go back and ask for more trouble. (laughs) That's not what I meant to say last night. If that's the impression people got, you tell them that's not the impression I wanted to leave. I don't ask for trouble, but I'm asking for him. And I'm recognizing that when he comes, there's sometimes trouble, Not, not, not physical disabilities, Please let me clarify this. I mean, he speaks in ways that I wish he wouldn't. But because it's him, then I can handle it. And I can take it and accept it. If you're hungering for something like this, I love to re- leave a book with you every time I come. And I think I have pretty consistently. But uh, there's a book that I'm working through now. My brother-in-law wanted to borrow it, but I couldn't loan it to him because I'm working through it. And I'll probably work through it again. It's called Invitation to solitude and silence by ruth haley barton if you have any interest in going deeper with jesus and spending time with him quality time that makes a difference in your life then boy i i just encourage you to get a hold of that book because what she does is she she talks about her own life but then she gives steps you can take to implement this idea or every chapter has a has practice so you can learn how to spend that time with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You say, why bother? I, I say, because we need to be disturbed by him. It's such a nice, placid, uh, no ripples in the lake of our life, if, if we can manage it that way. But what he's looking for us to do is to say, okay, Lord, if there's something I need to, to change, then you come and you tell me that, and, and I'm going to listen, and I'm going to do what you tell me to do. So here's a challenge. Monday, tomorrow, And next Monday, take Mark chapter 11 and spend time. And keep in mind, I'm here not only because I want to read what this says and see what happened here, but I'm here because I want to hear what Jesus says, and I want to know what that means for me in this coming week. Tuesday, take Mark chapter 12. This week and next week, do the same thing. It might take you 45 minutes. You know, that's okay. Carve it out. Get up at 2 in the morning. Carve out 45 minutes and see if that doesn't make a difference in your life. Wednesday, would you take Mark chapter 13, and for two weeks, this Wednesday and next Wednesday, take that time and say, Jesus, I'm here. Peter said, if I come, you'll somehow speak to me. So I I really want to have your presence, and I want to know what you have to say about my life so that my life will be different as a result of my spending time here. That's all I'm asking. Mark chapter 11, 12, 13 for the glory of God, for the change in your life, for the, the word that he might bring to you about what's next, about what needs to be next for his kingdom. Let's pray together, please. Lord Jesus, you're the one who uh, invited your disciples to go with you on those days. You could have gone alone. They could have stayed back at wherever they were spending the night, but you had Him go with you. I'm persuaded, Lord, that you want us to go with you to those places as well. So be gentle, we ask God. We're not looking for trouble, but we're looking for your presence and for your word so that we might genuinely celebrate, that we might genuinely enter into that Thursday and Friday and Saturday and Sunday that's coming. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.